Our Psalter reading is from Psalm chapter 18, verses 46 through 50, and can be found on page 456 in the Bibles we provide. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 33, through chapter 19, verse 3, and can be found on page 904 in the Bibles we provide. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him but you have a custom that I shall release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. This is the gospel of Christ. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were here at Cedar Springs, my wife and I, Virginia, um, in 2014 when you hosted the General Assembly for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And uh, you did an excellent job in hosting that. uh, And we really uh, enjoyed listening to Pastor John Woods. And uh, Tim Keller was here that year uh, preaching. I didn't think when I sat there that I'd ever be in this pulpit, so uh, I am grateful and and honored to be with you this morning and to be able to share God's Word. Uh, Joshua 10 is probably not a real familiar passage in God's Word for you, so let's open that. You might want to keep it open as we move through the message. Listen carefully, this is God's Word. Now, Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. 
He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoam, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Yarmouth, Japheah, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Well, then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeons then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including the best fighting men. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Ezekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Ezekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. More of them died from the hail than were killed by the sword, swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun stands still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nations avenged on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jeshur, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, delayed going down about a full day. There was never been, there never has been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. The word of the Lord. Lord God, please speak to us now through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father, and in the name of the Son. Amen. The name Israel means God fights, Yahweh fights. And all through salvation history, I think it needs to be understood that God is fighting for us. God is fighting for our redemption. God is surely on the side of humanity that he has created. We know that he loves this world so much so that he gave his one and only son. But this struggle that is described here goes back to the garden. When God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
The promise of God fighting for us goes back to Abraham. When God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God started something with a beleaguered little nation and created a body, a people of God, through whom he would send the Messiah. We would not have planned it this way, I doubt. There is a complexity to salvation history, just like there is a complexion, complexity to creation. It's not what we would figure out. It's not what we would design. And just like you can, I, we cannot get to the bottom of creation, I don't think we can get to the bottom of his salvation history plan. In some ways, this passage strikes us as kind of almost inscrutable and hard to explain in the 21st century. Israel was commanded to move into Canaan, Palestine, and wipe everybody out. How is it that God almost imposed his final judgment upon the Canaanites before salvation history even sort of gets going and running with the promise of the Messiah? This passage goes on to describe the defeat of the five kings in a way that is graphically violent. Soldiers, the Israelites, put their feet on the necks of these five kings and kill them and put their bodies up on a pole. Well, the closest thing we have to that kind of reality today is by radical Islamist extremists. And yet this was part of God's plan. And this has to be sort of explained and talked about and thought through. God took this nation and he set it apart and set it above in its customs, its language, its rituals, its diet, in every way to distinguish it out from their neighbors, from the cultures, in such a way as to be a testimony and defined it by the law of God. And that law does not, while it has commonalities with other Near Eastern laws, it is distinctive. You shall have no other gods before me. And it describes a profile of a people designed by God with its rituals of Passover and tabernacle, all of that to keep it as a distinct testimony to salvation history, testimony to what God was doing. Joshua 10 is a difficult passage in that respect, but I think it has to be understood in this larger way of realizing how God shows his mercy. I want to talk to you just briefly this morning, moving toward the table on the conquest and the commission and the consummation. You and I are part of a story, a great salvation history story. Everyone has a narrative, but there's only one narrative that redeems our story. We live in a very individualistic society where the self is uppermost in 
seemingly everyone's consciousness. And today there's a tremendous burden being placed on the self because in our modern Western thought, the self designs life. The self determines what is meaning and what is purposeful. It was never meant to be that way. The teenager was never meant to be Plato and Aristotle. It was never meant to come up with a philosophy of life. We believe that salvation is received by faith. It's a gift from God. And I'd suggest to you that not only is salvation a gift from God, but significance and meaning and purpose is a gift from God. This is something we receive by God. And it fits here with the design of what God is doing through the Israelites in order to establish his identity. You've heard about the victory in Jericho, the victory in Ai. You heard about the setback with uh, Achan and his sin. I've been following the sermons, and so I want this to be online with those. You've understood what Israel is doing in the promised land. Another failure that went sort of under the radar for the Israelites was the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were a powerful group in Canaan, and in a way they outsmarted the Israelites. They were fearful. Seeing what Israel did in Jericho, seeing what Israel did in Ai, they didn't feel, even with their good fighters and the strong army that they were, they didn't feel that they could defeat Israel. So what they did was, Dressed in disguise, they brought rotten, they brought uh, moldy bread, they brought wine that had spoiled, and they went into the Israelite camp, faced Joshua, and said, We've come from a great long distance, and we want to establish a treaty with you. We've heard about you. And because they were seemingly out of the zone, We read that the Israelites sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. And then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. So they didn't seek the Lord. They relied upon their common sense, and they made a treaty. Now, what's striking to me is that this five-king battle rose because the five kings are fighting against the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites then go to Israel and say, look, you made a treaty with us. It's your responsibility to defend us, to fight for us. Joshua could have said, you deceived us. It was out of duplicity that we established that treaty. We are not going to honor that treaty because you did not honor us. But that's not what Joshua said. Joshua had made that treaty before the presence of God. And because of that, he would honor and Israel would honor their word to protect the Gibeonites. In a way, I think this is a foreshadowing. It's a preview of how the church is in the world. We live in a duplicitous, dishonest, unreliable, not truth-seeking culture But the Christian stands by their truthfulness in God, in Christ, by the word of God, by the living God, in spite of the culture. It's our responsibility in a culture that's lost a sense of truthfulness to be truthful, 
In some ways, that's the only way people will begin to understand and appreciate the truth is just by being with truthful people. So the Gibeonite episode in this passage, I think, is interesting. It is what provokes the battle, and the battle is won by Israel. One thing that's interesting as you read the Old Testament, Israel does not win on grounds of military strategy or by its abilities. There's not the normal way of talking about a military campaign when it comes to Israel. In each and every case, like what the prophet Zechariah will say in the future, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. God produces the victory for Israel. And he does it in two ways here. And we shouldn't be surprised that nature is responsive to the God who creates and the God who redeems. A hailstorm wipes out more of the enemy than Israel did. And then the Lord blessed Israel with the first occasion of daylight savings time. The day is extended. And just how that worked out scientifically, how big a change cosmically that produced, we have no idea. In that place, at that time, the sunlight was continued in order for Israel to realize the victory. And you say, well... How does that, how does faith and reason and science work in all of that? What we've seen all through salvation history at strategic times, God uses nature in order to write an exclamation mark on what he is doing. And so we saw it with Noah and the cataclysmic flood. Uh, We see it uh, right through the whole experience of Israel in Egypt with the ten plagues. We see it right into the New Testament when an earthquake happens and the stone that was covering the tomb of Jesus is rolled back. We just see it all over at strategic points. Nature is subject to the Lord of creation. And we would expect that, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we expect a harmony between nature, creation, and redemption and the God who is the Lord over both? Christopher Nolan is a movie producer, and in 2017, he produced a movie called Dunkirk. Maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, It was when the British troops were stranded on uh, the coast uh, at Dunkirk, uh, well, on France, and had to move to Dunkirk, and hundreds of thousands of troops. And what this movie does is take you through one week of a ground troop, trooper, a soldier waiting for a week for rescue. And then that's all overlaid with the one day of a captain, a boat captain, with his small boat coming to take soldiers off the beach. And one hour with a pilot who is flying to keep the German Luftwaffe away. You got one week, one hour, One week, one day, and one hour. And Christopher Nolan uses this relativity of time in order to emphasize the the fact that the intensity and the meaning all comes together, and he uses creatively space and time in order to make his message. And I think that that's just what the Lord does here. 
in the defeat of the five kings. The conquest. A history that may be hard for us to grapple with. And a lot of people who talk about Israel today would say of the Old Testament, this is not the God of the New Testament. I'm trying to make a case for you this morning that it is the God of the New Testament. And this is how God worked in order to bring about the salvation of humankind. He kept Israel as a secure testimony of his grace, no matter how stubborn and hard-hearted they were. Not only was Israel set apart and set above, but the church is set apart and set above. But you and I have not been given a conquest strategy. You and I have been given a great commission strategy to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, Jesus said. That's why Christmas is such a wonderful celebration because there is a strategic change. It's been there all along. But now the change is radically pronounced in Emmanuel, God with us. God enfleshed, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now it's not a conquest strategy, but it's a great commission strategy. Now it's not a question of genealogy. It's not a question of geography. It's not a question of ethnicity. Now the testimony of God's people goes global for every nation. And the New Testament understands the struggle that the first Jewish Christians had over the fact that now it has gone global. And it's not about our place, but it's about the world that indeed for God so loved the world. The church, though, is still militant. There's still a gospel militancy. But again, it's the kind of militancy that the world has never seen before. Because now we fight not against anyone, even our enemy. We fight for. We fight for the culture, not against the culture. We fight for people with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why the military language is there all throughout the the New Testament, where the Apostle Peter says, uh, he refers to the sinful desires which wage war against the soul. He urges believers to arm themselves with the same mind as Christ Jesus. And this is why Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you might withstand the attack of the devil. And this is why Paul says, we are not armed with the weapons of the world. So bring it on, the slander, the deceit, the dishonesty. Bring all of that on and the Christian does not respond in kind. And that's where the strength of the Christian life is found. We don't meet slander with slander. We don't meet duplicity with duplicity. We don't meet dishonesty with dishonesty. 
Instead, we meet the world with the mind of Christ. Could you find anything more radical than that? That gospel militancy. Jesus said, in the world, you have, we will have trouble. He said this to his disciples on the night before he was to be crucified. In the world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. For though we live in the world, Paul said, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So there isn't a conquest strategy. There is a great commission strategy. And one last image that we should explore, and we'll do it really briefly, is there is a consummation. Conquest, the commission, and the consummation. I'm teaching a course in the book of Revelation in our church, and I last week was at the fifth chapter, which is this great throne of God seen where the Apostle John is invited, invited into the very presence of God, and in the hand of God is a scroll. And the scroll is covering with words front and back, but no one is there to open the scroll to release the seals, and John begins to weep. And in his vision, in his praying imagination, he comes to the place of of beginning to realize, what if there isn't any end? What if there isn't any consummation? What if there isn't anyone to reveal what has not, revealing the end of salvation history? And then the mighty one says to John, stop weeping. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is here and he can break the seals. And John turns and he sees a lamb that was slain. A lamb looking like it was slain. And remember John the Baptist introduced Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he draws that image of the lamb all the way back to Genesis and Abel's first sacrificial lamb. And then to Abraham, who is asked to offer his son on Mount Moriah. And Abraham, Isaac asks Abraham, well, we got the fire, we got the wood, where's the lamb? And Abraham says in words that are just great with prophetic impact, God will provide the lamb. And then the Passover lamb, again, a symbol of the sacrifice that is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. So right from the beginning, even in the midst of the conquest strategy, God always had the design of a sacrifice on behalf of the world and that he would send his only, his one and only son to do that. The Apostle John uses the imagery of the lamb in the book of Revelation 28 times. It is his preferred expression for God to let us know that that redemptive sacrificial plan was always in God's mind and is always at the heart of that great commission strategy. God has sacrificed himself. Five kings killed, hung on a pole, 
But now there's one king, king of kings, lord of lords, hung on a cross. Always in the plan of God has been that he would enter into that human suffering and take upon himself the penalty for our sin. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes, until the consummation. We're still in the story. The story's not over. It's not a done deal. We wait for that consummation. May Jesus Christ be praised. In the name of the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church, for their love for your word, for your love for the mission of the church. I pray for your continued blessing and encouragement upon this body. Help us to understand and live into your truth. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.